0: Welcome to your upfront moment. That I feel, um, I to share with We're building a confidence revolution. Confident, brave, inspired, hopeful. Oh. Your upfront moment. Oh. Share, reflect, learn, and grow. Oh. Oh. Here to change confidence, not women. Hi friend, welcome to this week's Upfront Moment. This week I am joined by Kate Sevilla, who is the Editor-in-Chief of HuffPost UK and the author of How to Work Without Losing Your Mind. Kate has over 15 years' experience in digital publishing, including time as Head of Editorial at Google Arts and Culture and the Founding Managing Editor at BuzzFeed UK. She published her first book in 2021 – how to work without losing your mind, sharing an unflinchingly honest account of her experiences with bad bosses, time spent crying in the workloose, the hell and humiliation of her working life, but most importantly, she shares the solid self-belief, sage advice and hard-won lessons that got her through. In this conversation, we talked about work, identity, the power of therapy, the cultural differences between the UK and the USA and the power of explicitly asking for what you want and need. I hope you love this conversation. Let's go. Good morning, Kate. Welcome to Upfront Moment. It's so nice to meet you. How are you today?
1: I'm really well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. You are so welcome. So tell us all, who are you and what is your work all about?
0: And I'd love to know about your book as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um I'm Kate. As you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not from the UK. I'm from California. I've lived in London for about 20 years almost now, but I still sound like this. And I am the editor-in-chief of HuffPost UK and I also wrote a book called How to Work Without Losing Your Mind. I've had quite a uh, squiggly career, as you say. So, yeah, I've I've learned quite a lot, particularly over like the last, you know, since I've lived in the UK about myself, mental health, the work that I do, I predominantly kind of have worked in digital media and digital publishing, which is an interesting industry to be in, particularly in a cost of living crisis. But yeah, that's that's kind of me. Oh, And I have a two and a half year old little boy and i am um, still very much in the early days of learning how to have a smile child and work full time as well.
0: Yes. Which is the biggest project of our lives, right? Mm-hmm. Try to figure that one out.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It is a wild, wild thing.
0: So you left California where you were born to come to London to marry a British man that you met on MySpace when you were 20. So I am I have lots of questions about <laughs> this. Like where did Where did the confidence to follow your heart and make such a bold move come from?
1: Yeah, on paper, and I guess it was just pretty mad. We had met on MySpace when, gosh, what year was it? It was like 2005, I think we met. And like, that was like in the very like infancy of social media. And Skype was just a thing. Like it had just launched so we could talk that way. But yeah, it was a big, big change. But I don't, think at the time, the kind of the wonderful thing about being so young is that I didn't really fully grasp the gravity of such a change. It didn't even occur to me until I was in therapy about, you know, seven, eight years later, that like the cultural differences between the UK and the US are so big, because you're kind of led to believe that, okay, we more or less, Mm -hmm. talk the same and obviously we came from England and moved over so it's like you think that there's all this connection and really there are some really big big cultural differences but yeah to be honest I think I was just blinded by lust and love desire and wanted to so desperately uh be with Ian who's my husband and I growing up I always I wouldn't say I was an Anglophile But I definitely had a kind of questionable amount of interest in the UK and in England and had socks with the Union Jack on them when I was 10. Like what? Like I grew up in Northern California. Like what was why? Why were they selling those firstly? And secondly, like, why did I so desperately need a pair? But yeah, I think I just always kind of intrinsically knew in my gut that that was where I was supposed to be. And Ian was mm-hmm. who I was supposed to be with. And it wasn't straightforward. It was actually very complicated. But for some reason, that decision, I just kind of accepted as, well, this is this is my life. This is what my life is going to look like and be like. And this is the correct, right thing for me. And as somebody who grew up being a people pleaser and a very, very good girl, that was very kind of incongruent at the time of like a choice that I would have made because I think in that around that time period I had quit going to I was going to a community college so not even like a four year university and working full time and was just kind of like I I quit going to school because I was like I'm never gonna get a degree I wouldn't get a degree until I was 27 <laughs> if I because I had to support myself and work so I was like that's not gonna work so I don't know all of these things just aligned and I made some pretty big decisions. Around my education and my work and my my whole life, and moved. So yeah, I mean, it's I struggle with deciding what to have for lunch every day, <laughs> but the really big decisions don't ever feel that daunting to me. It's funny, I
0: I share that trait, and it's something that me and my partner have talked about. Where you know, moving to Sweden in the middle of a pandemic with a two year old, like even now on reflection, I'm like that is such a huge, crazy-ass decision. It's huge. But even <laughs> now, it doesn't feel that way. Whereas we, you know, our friends make fun of us because it took us, like, four months to buy a rug for our bathroom because we were so...
1: We're the <laughs> we same. We not it. agree
0: on this rug. And it's like, oh, but should we run a marathon? Yeah, let's do that. Let's yeah. trade for a marathon whilst we have a four-year-old. Like... And that decision felt easy. So I'm sure those, there's some, there'll be some scientists out there that's, I bet there's a name for that, this thing that people have where the big, hard decisions feel easy and the small ones feel really difficult. But I'm definitely with you on that one. And I'd love to know, you mentioned the kind of the differences and the cultural differences between the UK and the US. Is there anything that jumps to mind in the context of confidence and women at work and, you know, the, the kind of gender stereotypes and the cultural norms we have around as you mentioned like women being people pleasers and the kind of good girl narrative are there any differences or kind of anything that comes to mind for you between the two cultures there
1: yeah no that's that's really interesting because uh, I actually have like predominantly worked for American companies Mm -hmm. in the UK I when I was in the US I worked in cafes and at Starbucks and ice cream shops I didn't have like an office corporate job at all or writing job at all when I was in the US. So my only kind of experience of corporate life of having a nine to five is from being in the UK and almost exclusively with the exception of a couple startups working at big American companies that are then, Mm -hmm. you know, opening a new building in the UK, a new office. So my view of it is probably a bit muddled because I would say, while I sound American, and I think so much of like my core behavior and probably my view on the world is very much based on the first you know, 20 years of my life being spent in the US. But I feel like more culturally in my day to day and the way I speak and the way I respond to emails as being more British. And it's interesting what you're talking about stereotypes. I think I, because I have that kind of base knowledge of both places, I think I can, be quite fluid with the way that I talk and the way that I kind of move through my working life. And I think maybe that's the reason I've been hired at these places, because there's just kind of like an intrinsic understanding that I can kind of walk the line with both and understand both. But I think that the communication is the biggest one. And I think what I've found in this is just speaking in big stereotypes, but that I think Americans are will be more blunt, actually. Like, friendly but blunt and my British colleagues will probably it takes them longer I think to get to like the bluntness and the sharpness that I've experienced with like my my American colleagues and especially the more senior American colleagues that I've experienced in my working life yeah, I think actually the British way of going about things is a bit softer, maybe more passive aggressive even but I think that's where I do benefit from kind of understanding and knowing how to kind of talk to and and navigate both sets. And again, speaking and sweeping generalizations there, but I think more or less that's kind of the biggest working difference that I found. But equally, there's just like fundamental things where I think attitude to work is different because of things like healthcare, because Mm -hmm. of things like notice periods and vacation. I think the Biggest thing when I moved to the UK and they were like, yes, you get like, you know, 20, 25 days holiday. And I was like, I'm sorry, hmm? (laughs) you what? You get what? Because in the States, it very much is, you know, two weeks, three weeks, if you're lucky and you've been somewhere for a long time. But if you do shift work, so like when I worked at Starbucks, you had to work your ass off to accrue enough hours to be able to take that time off. So like the first time I came to the UK, I think I came for like a week, maybe. And I had to work like consistently, not taking any time off so that you could bank that time so you Mm -hmm. wouldn't lose money, you know? So that must just intrinsically shape the way that people approach their working life and their relationship with their career differently. If you only have two weeks, maybe, you know, holiday versus here where it's just, you're just automatically given more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It must have a huge effect. You know, there's lots in there about, Safety and future planning, and consistency and well being, which I guess are themes. The well being one in particular is a big theme in your book, How to Work Without Losing Your Mind. And you know, in the book, I was really struck by how open and honest you were, you know, very generous in sharing your own personal experiences. And I'm curious to know more about the decisions that you made on what to share, what not to share. Because I do think that is a confidence challenge. It's something that I think about a lot as also someone who really tries to be open and honest and share as much as I can for the benefit of myself and others, but also being mindful of protecting myself and that. Um, yeah, I think it's it's just slightly, it's more complex and nuanced, I think, than people realise. So I'd love to hear you kind of talk about that.
1: Yeah, it's um I would say it felt a lot easier to be more open and vulnerable in a book than on social media and in mm. the things I write about online. I think I kind of the kind of background I have predominantly writing online and working a lot in the lifestyle space. I have seen and been through those waves of and I think we're at another wave now actually of people having to emotionally bankrupt themselves for the sake of clicks and the things that get commissioned and the things that um, the headlines that you see a lot, particularly on Instagram, are all these first person, extremely personal experiences, which I think is so important and so harrowing, particularly when it's stories like we just published something on HuffPost from somebody who, you know, met their boyfriend who lived in Tel Aviv in Canada, and they were over when you know the war, unfortunately, started. And their kind of harrowing experience, first-person experience is so important. However, that is so much different than people kind of mining all of their traumatic experiences and choosing to share those online, which can be healing for some people and necessary for people to make a living if you're a freelance writer, unfortunately. But then... Also, it's benefiting a wider corporation. It's just so complicated and nuanced. But I think I found, because I don't actually share that much of my personal life or my child's life on Instagram, on social media, that's much more complicated for me and a whole other conversation. But Mm -hmm. for writing about my working experiences and the ways that it impacted my mental health for a book was really healing, actually. And I feel much more comfortable having it printed in a book than I do having it online and searchable, easy to copy and paste. And Do you know what I mean? I don't know. It feels Mm -hmm. safer in a book in a way. And I think at the moment in time that I wrote that book, I had just been through a pretty public experience of losing my job and having the company that I worked for fall to pieces within four months of me being there. Crucial to point out that I was not in charge of the finances. I just joined at a very unfortunate time in the company. And the kind of financial downfall of that business was all over social media. It was on the news. It was in private eye. It was pretty traumatic. And writing this book was a way of processing that. And then also, to be honest, the previous kind of traumatic working experience that I had when I was at Google. So I had been through quite a lot and being able to write about the truth of how I felt in a lot of those moments And how I'd felt in previous jobs where my mental health really suffered and I didn't necessarily know why or wasn't at a point in my own therapy that I could get to the root of why. And I think by the time that I sat down to write this book, I had really unpicked in therapy the experiences that I had been through. And that allowed me to kind of go, you know what? I'm not going to get myself in legal trouble. Obviously, my publisher wasn't going to get themselves Mm -hmm. into legal trouble either. But I just thought like, okay, what is the line of me being as honest and forthcoming as I can about how I felt versus this person said this and that person said Mm -hmm. that and really kind of trying to be as empathetic as possible and imagine some of the people that I I'm, you know, alluding to reading that book, knowing that it was them that I was talking about some of it, I was just like, well, if they read this, this is how I felt. It wasn't from and I felt really comfortable because I tried to have so many difficult conversations with a lot of the people that I, you know, allude to and kind of reference that I was comfortable in, in how I how I handled those situations in the moment and in person so that reflecting on it in a book didn't feel unfair to me.
0: Yeah, I think the point about, you know, you did have those conversations and you gave that person the opportunity to listen and respond and reply is really, really important. And how have people responded to the, the stories that you've shared in the
1: book? I mean, I would say like on a weekly basis, I will get a really lovely message from a reader talking about how this helped them at a terrible time in their career, or they've just quit their job and they're reading this, or they're just returning from maternity leave and they've, you know, chose to read my book. And that has been, I mean, that's why I wanted to write it. I didn't write it being like, well, this, this has to become a bestseller. And if it's not a Sunday Times bestseller, then I'm over. You know, I very much was like, gosh, if I can just help that person that's crying in the loo and trying not to mm. have a panic attack at work that's who i want to help awards lists all that sort of stuff be damned like that's not why i'm doing this like i'm writing it to try to just help your average person that's having a difficult time at work and i know a lot of ex colleagues have picked up the book i don't know if some of the more difficult managers that i've had in the past have read it but the the feedback that i've got from people who have worked and kind of lived through some of these situations with me has been Really lovely and affirming. I've not got any hate mail from from many of my ex-colleagues. Yeah, but you know, there's still time. There's still time.
0: (laughs) I'd like to know about your journey of writing a book because it's something that I would love to do one day. I know there's lots of people listening who would one day like to write a book. And you need a lot of self-belief, I think, and a lot of confidence in yourself. And, and your knowledge and your ability. Talk to me about your kind of confidence along that journey. Was there any moments where you had a crisis of confidence? Were there things that really boosted you as you went through the process? What did that look like?
1: I mean, <laughs> from a confidence perspective, writing a book, is just, if you need to beep this out, you can, it's just a clusterfuck. (laughs) It's like, it really is just so exposing. And I think I can't speak about fiction as I've not, I've not written fiction yet, but at least the process of writing a nonfiction book, it's like, it's a complete, it's such a vulnerable thing to try to get an agent. And I'm very privileged in the jobs that I've done that I'm connected to other writers, other authors who very kindly can help me make connections with, you know, other, other agencies, other agents. But even just doing that, the process of just trying to get an agent is like, God, like you really have to believe in yourself and kind of like reread your own CV and reread on paper the things that you've done and the experience that you've had as a kind of reminder to yourself of like, oh no, like all the shit that's going on in my head is not necessarily the truth things that I've accomplished, the roles that I've had, my experience, that's the truth. So even just getting that, getting an agent is terrifying. But the actual process, the actual publishing process itself, I got so much more comfortable with rejection. Mm. You have to. Like, that's, I think that's the thing. It's been such a fantastic exercise in not getting what you want, (laughs) (laughs) not being treated sometimes as you would hope, getting rejected, getting rejected, getting rejected, (laughs) getting rejected over and over and over again, that can happen. But I think, you know, going through even the exercise of writing a book proposal is really exposing and it really kind of shows you whether or not you have a solid idea. Because if you can't get through a book proposal, that idea is not an entire book. It might be an essay, Mm -hmm. might be a podcast, but it's not a book. So I knew that from kind of going through the ringer with trying to put together a proposal for the idea that I had, that I had it, that I had a book there. I knew I was the right person to write that book. And it's just trying to get enough yeses because it gets taken to like an acquisition meeting. So an editor goes, yep, I like you. I like this book. Cool. They take it to that meeting and they have to convince every other person around that table that, yep, we're going to invest in you and we're going to publish this book, which is hard. Because my book got taken to a lot of those meetings and didn't get through a lot of them. So it, like going through that whole process just to get that phone call, congratulations, you're going to be a Penguin author. You go through so much just to get there. And then you have to write the fucking thing, <laughs> which, like, I loved the process of writing the book. I know so often people are like, it's terrible. I loved it. But I think that that's also a difference between nonfiction and fiction is that Mm -hmm. it felt like a very a series of very long articles. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of how I approached it. But from a confidence perspective, it's just it's just a constant thing. The most soul sucking thing for I think so many authors is the self promotion and trying to get God forsaken endorsements from other people going through your contact list and being like, oh, my God, I have to ask this really important person if they can give me a blurb. Jesus Christ, like it's it really is just like a constant, a constant. Mm-hmm. Now you have to ask for this. Now yeah. you have to do an interview. Now you have to write about it. Now we're going to ask you to speak at this thing. And that's not always how it goes. I was very privileged to where I had a lot of support when my book was launched in the middle of a pandemic. But like everything, even now, like paperback came out in January. I've had to do a lot of promotion and trying to get it in bookstores myself. And you can sit around and be like, Sally Rooney doesn't have to do this. Go <laughs> so well. I'm not fucking Sally Rooney, am I? I have to march my book down to the bookshop down the road. I've been doing a lot of like local events, and people could be like, well, it's not London, is it? Or could be like, well, actually, I'm talking to the people who are actually going to buy my book where I live. That's really cool, actually, (laughs) like to be able to talk to my neighbors about what I wrote and hope that it can help them as well. So every step of it is a test for your own confidence and your own (laughs) self-belief and some days you're great at it and some days you're not and some days that kind of comparison monster rears its hideous head and you have to deal with that as well
0: (laughs) yeah it sounds a lot like running a business I think yeah somebody said to me once like running a business is like being in therapy because there's no part of yourself that you can hide and it sounds like publishing and writing a book is very similar.
1: Yeah. And that's not to try to make it all sound negative because it's not. No, because
0: it's wonderful in many
1: ways. Yeah, but it is. It's if you are very afraid of a single rejection letter, maybe not yet for you. Yeah.
0: And so let's talk about the actual key messages around how to be okay at work when you are feeling, you know, you gave the example of your crying in the toilet, feeling sick on a Monday morning. Like, what are your kind of key messages for people who might be finding themselves in a situation where they are really unhappy at work for different reasons?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, we mentioned earlier having difficult and uncomfortable conversations in the past. And I think, honestly, that's the most crucial thing because I think so often, like you'll see on like TikTok or Instagram, people being like, you know, just just quit, just leave your job, like be you, follow your dreams. (laughs) It's not that easy. Just disappear. Disappear. It's fine. Go live in a camper van. It's cool. That's just not like, that's such a privileged thing to be able to just quit your job. And especially in like a probably global cost of living crisis, that's not doable for so many people for so, so many different reasons. So yeah, you can't just quit your job. Some people can. Great. That's what you're going to do. Excellent. Do that for yourself. If you have that option, take it. But I think so many of us have to have really difficult conversations. So for me, when I'm really stressed and like, oh gosh, can I, can I continue to do this? Well, I have to continue doing it because I need to pay for nursery and you know, my bills and my mortgage. Okay. What is within my control and within my power to make this more tolerable for myself? What are the things that I can do for myself? If you were in a position where therapy is an option for you, wonderful, take it. If it is not an option for you, there are a lot of other resources available to you that might be just as helpful. I used to be of the kind of militant standpoint that therapy is for everybody. It doesn't work for everybody. Talking therapy is not just a one size kind of fits all option that will cure anyone of anything. So I think, you know, reading journaling, speak to your friends, taking care of your body is taking care of your mind, you know, listening to your energy levels. And if you have lots of weird aches and pains and eye twitches, and I think so often that that's our body signaling to us, hey, hello, (laughs) you're extremely stressed and you're not kind of logically, mentally acknowledging that that stress and that you're in a situation that's not going very well for you right now so i think that there's there's a lot of things that that we can do to try to get ourselves to where we are okay and then it's having those and by okay i mean like able to kind of do the basics for ourselves and look after our families our pets whoever it is that's within our life that we need to help take care of and have that symbiotic relationship with but having You know, actually, if I could just do four days a week instead of five, but I'm too afraid to have that conversation with my manager. So that's not an option. They're just going to say no. Well, ask. I think so often we kind of answer things for other people without asking first. A lot of times it's like, well, they should just know that I need that. Or they're just going to say no anyway. They're not going to do that. It's pointless. Well, ask. You'll be surprised. A lot of the times when we actually ask for help, and be very explicit in what we actually need and what we actually need from our manager, our organization as a whole, our colleagues, the people that report into us, we will be pleasantly surprised more often than not. So I think the main biggest, biggest thing that I would want folks to take away from my book is having difficult conversations, the importance of that, and the importance of exploring your own relationship with your job, your relationship with success, your work ethic, what's behind that and what do you actually want from your life, your real, real life that work is a part of, because that can kind of give you perspective on why it is that you are in a corporate job or why you're not able to switch industries. I think getting to the root of what it is that you want gives you that perspective for your working life, your career, your relationship with your career.
0: Have you changed your mind about any of those things? Like, can you see how your perspective on success has changed, for example, over the last five years? I think often becoming a mom can bring a whole lot of perspective to some of those things that you mentioned.
1: Yeah, I think I I did a lot of work and I did a lot of therapy <laughs> before I had my son. And I mean, I had been with my husband for 15 years before we decided to have kids or just try to try to have kids because you don't know, right? And I don't think I would have made the decision to that. Yes, we're ready. We would have made the decision, not just me, obviously, but for me becoming a mom and doing Mm -hmm. the physical initial part of it, right, was like, I was in a much better place with my career and the way I felt about it. And the change for me wasn't so much like, oh, I'm going to have a a child and it's going to derail my career. Like I had already had my career kind of derailed for me. (laughs) I had already made different decisions. I thought, okay, I'll continue to write another book. I will have my son in nursery part time so that I can have meetings and do my podcast interviews. And because I had a podcast at the time and what other opportunities kind of come around and then I'll write that second book. And My life was going to be very domestic and at home and creative. And that was what I envisioned for myself as a part-time working mom. And then the biggest shift came when the opportunity to be the editor-in-chief of HuffPost UK came knocking. And was very persistent from my manager who recruited me. Because I was like, no, leave me alone, like several times. And when it became clear why... They wanted me to apply for this job and to speak to me about this job. And when I realized, oh, actually, shit, I really want to do that. But that's That's not the plan. I think that for me has been like the biggest test of what I wrote in my book and the biggest test of my own relationship with work and how I view success, my relationship with Creativity and just my overall identity. I think work, and especially for women who have children, like I needed to work and work helped kind of put myself back together from a really difficult time of having a baby in a pandemic and uh, having quite a traumatic delivery. And my dad died a couple of days after my son was born. And work for me and getting back in that routine and suddenly working five days my son is at nursery five days a week and my husband and I trying to balance all that and figure out what that looks like that's been a real test of all of the kind of anchors of perspective that I've built for myself and it's still a process I think that's the biggest thing is that we never just like everyone knows this but we like forget it like you can figure it out and then suddenly be like wait what the fuck (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and not have it figured out all of a sudden yeah having to kind of relearn and re-remember like my husband so many times has been like perhaps read your own book perhaps go back and look at the thing that you wrote and that and I'm like oh yeah <laughs> and like I have and I've had to remind myself so many times
0: it's nice to know that I'm not the only one that sometimes my partner will say the same thing to me like Hi, huh, I think I know a course that could tell me about that. I feel <laughs> I like someone. there's a podcast that you should definitely listen to. And that's the thing; I think there's no, there's no destination, there's no end point with this stuff, is it?
1: No, it's a constant test and stretch of our identities and our mental health. And being alive is hard, you know. Being a grown up is tough.
0: Oh, it's it is. true, but also being a toddler is really tough. Oh. As you are living and breathing at the minute. I read such a funny thing on Instagram. It really made me laugh last night where it was saying, picture the scene, you know, you've had a long lie and a lovely fresh bed. There's fresh snow on the ground. Your mum's just made really lovely hot cinnamon rolls. But because you're three, you're blind with rage.
1: (laughs) I saw my husband sent me that and we laughed so hard. I saw another one like it Say, I can't remember what it said. Oh, yeah. It was like, childhood is so wonderful. And it's awful, because you can't remember what an easy, soft, lovely time that you're actually having. But because you're filled with rage that you had to share like your coloring book with your sister or something. It's, like, it's so true. Like, the amount of rage, but I like I, mm. I get it. I'm like, dude, like I struggle to regulate my emotions at the best of times, like they can't. They also struggle to communicate. They also don't know what a lot of stuff is. They can't reach anything. They can't just go get the stuff that they want. And you have someone bossing you around all the time, basically telling you the opposite of what it is that you want to be doing. Like you would be pissed, wouldn't you?
0: Bless them. That's so funny.
1: Okay, so I have one last
0: question, which I ask all our guests on the podcast, which is when Upfront achieves our mission of supporting a million women with their confidence and their self-belief, how will the world be different from your vantage point?
1: The first thing that comes to mind is that it will be softer. I mean, there's there's so many awful, awful upsetting things going on, particularly at the minute in the world. And you just have a lot of really angry men in charge, really angry men who having a son now, I think about the world differently. And I just think that things, if you guys achieve your mission, that we will have more patience and things will be a bit softer and more empathetic and more space for feeling and healing and that that will hopefully help fix some of the very awful things that are happening from very broken men and broken systems
0: yeah a softer world is the world i want to live in same sounds cozy well thank you so much kate it's been a pleasure to have this time with you and we will put a link to your book in the show notes so folks can get their own copy of how to work without losing your mind and wish you the very best of luck with your toddler adventures thank you thank you for tuning in to this week's upfront moment before i say goodbye i want to remind you to follow up front on instagram and join the other 5000 women all over the world who get our weekly newsletter Go to wearupfront.com to find out more. Bye friend, I'll see
1: you on Monday for your next Upfront Moment.